Hey, my name's Chris. If I don't know you, um, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we're in a series right now called Church in the Wild. Give a little context for what this series is. We're walking through the book of Acts, through the rest of the summer and into the early part of fall. And the reason we're calling it Church in the Wild is because it's this idea that the church just lived where it was. It wasn't just a a room on Sunday morning. And it wasn't just designated to one city. The people of God, the church lived a certain way wherever they were, whether it was in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, whether it took them to Ephesus, to Asia Minor, anywhere it took them, they lived out the message that Jesus had left them with. And they lived it from being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So as a church, we're reading through the book of Acts and walking through it together because we want to grab hold of this. And really the thing that we're grabbing hold of that I want us to get and I want to say over and over is that as the people of God, we're learning how the Spirit of God works in and through us to advance His kingdom. As the people of God, we're learning how the Spirit of God works in us and through us to advance His kingdom. That's why we're going through the book of Acts because we want a fresh revelation of God, what are you doing in me? And what do you want to do through me? Because you desire to advance your kingdom and your desire that I would do it with you. That you would do a work in me so that a work can come through me. And God wants to do both simultaneously. Amen? All right, so we're going to continue in that. But I got a question for you first. Have you ever done something with the right heart, but the outcome was not quite what you expected? Had one of those scenarios happen to you? You know, when I was in uh, second grade, I had one of these experiences, and, uh, you know, it was a book fair week. You know, the kids are all back there, and they get it more than you do. Book fair week was a big week at school. And you know what? Book fair week hasn't changed. We just play with, pay with like Cash App and Apple Pay now, and we used to play, pay with cash and checks. But it's the same setup. I mean, I think it's some of the same books that are still there. But book fair week was a really big week. And I remember being so excited. It's like, I mean, it was propaganda at its finest. They would walk you through every, every day. You would walk through book fair week and you would, you would look and you would see the books. And by the end of the week, you were like, you had to have this book. You had to have this book. You didn't know this book existed before this week, but you had to have that book now. And I found my book. It was a character book about baseball, and you could learn how to draw them. And I mean, it was a nice book. It wasn't one of those flimsy paperback choose-your-own-adventures. It was a hardback. And it had color photos. I mean, it probably had at least 60 pages. And I was pumped about this book. And I had talked my mom into letting me get this book. My mom was there working the book fairs most day, but on this Friday, she was like, I can't be there. I got other things to do. Realize you do have three other siblings. So she said, here's the deal. You can get that one book. And she gave me a blank check to take to the book fair. Well, we get there, and we're walking through the book fair, and I notice that at least half of my class 
doesn't have money for the book fair. So, generosity welled up in my heart, and I told everybody that they could pick a book. So we spent the next hour walking through, picking books. Now, I had boundaries. One book per person, no posters. I care about people's education, not their home decor. All right? So I let everybody pick their book. I go up to the table after. I write this check as a second grader. You know, somehow figured it out. Go back to the class. I mean, we are the most excited class in the entire school that day. Everybody's got a book. Everybody feels special. Everybody feels seen. It's like a utopian environment that we're walking into until my mom peeks her head in. And is like, come to me. And I go out there and I tell her what I've done. And she's in a precarious position. Because on one hand, my mom is so encouraged by my generosity to buy everyone books. She really was touched by it. On the other hand, she didn't plan on spending $500 on books for my class. So she tells me what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to keep the book that she told me I could get, and then I'm going to go collect everybody's books, and we're going to return them. I learned two lessons, very important lessons these days. First is don't give your child a blank check. But as I picked up these books, I began to learn, I would learn the second lesson. I came to my friend Jared and Jared didn't have money for the book fair. It wasn't because his parents forgot. It's because Jared never had money for book fair. His, you know, even in second grade, you knew Jared's family didn't have any money. And so I thought, I can't take his book. So I told my mom, I'll make a deal with you. Jared gets to keep his book. And I return all the other books, including mine. And so we did. And when I got home that day, the book I wanted was waiting for me. And here's the lesson I learned. That generosity is a heart posture. Generosity is about living open-handed. I live open-handed because I can freely give and I can freely receive. When I live with that heart posture, my hands are open. And God can do and move through me pour into me, and use what's already there for someone else if I live open-handed. Generosity is not about a dollar amount. It is about a heart posture before it is about anything else. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts 4 and Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 432 through 5. 11. And let me give you a little breakdown of what this chunk of scripture is like. In verses 32 through 35, we're going to get kind of the summary of what's going on right now, specifically as it pertains to the church and how they're engaging with each other with their material possessions and how it operates. And then it's going to jump to two examples. One is an example of somebody who was living out what is described in verses 32 through 35. 
The next is an example of a couple that didn't live according to that way. That's the chunk of scripture that we're looking at today. Just to be clear, so we're all working from the same page. This is not a message on tithing. I believe in tithing. Our church believes in tithing. We see it's a wonderful spiritual practice, just like Sabbath, just like prayer. It helps us connect and commune with God. You, you don't do it, but you know, it doesn't lead to your salvation. It, does, it comes out of an overflow of our salvation as, an, as a response of worship. If you want to learn more about tithing, go to our website. Um, Pastor J.D.'s got a message from our our, our, our spiritual discipline series on our giving page, you can dive into that here. But that's, that's not what we're doing today. Today we're talking about the heart. Today we're talking that generosity is a heart posture, not a dollar amount. Jesus outlined this in, in uh, Luke 21. In Luke 21, he's with his disciples, and they're, they're at a synagogue, and they pass the buckets, and there's a lot of wealthy people dropping in a lot of money, and then there's a poor widow who just drops in two coins. And he points out to them that she gave out of their need, that she was extremely generous in what she did, which tells us that in, because what Jesus did is he modeled for us what the Father is like. You want to know what, what God looks like? You read the Gospels and you see Jesus. So you want to know what what Jesus thinks of generosity? He doesn't think it's a dollar amount. He thinks it's the posture of your heart. Because he says two small copper coins was extremely generous. You don't have to hit some, some magic number to be generous. It's about the posture in which you live in your life. Do I live open handed or am I closed fisted? So we, let's just go ahead and get into the passage then. We're getting Acts chapter 4. Can you guys see that behind me? I'll move over. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as they had need. All right, we'll stop there. So what's taking place is that God's on the move in people's lives. People's hearts are being transformed by the message of grace that is being communicated about what Jesus has done. Miracles are happening. The church is meeting together and growing in strength and in unity. And what it says is they're growing in unity. Not in, not, they're not conforming to be the exact same people. They're just experiencing unity of heart and mind. Because they have recognized a, a value that says, hey, you know what? Everything is God's, and we are the stewards. He is entrusted with it. So we're going to use what he's entrusted for his purposes, whether it's to care for people or meet our own needs or further his kingdom. We're going to steward the resources he's given us because ultimately he's the owner. That's why people from time to time would sell what they had. 
because they all lived from this mindset, or most of them lived from this mindset that it's all God's, and I'm just stewarding what he's given me. They had an open-handed mindset. They had an open-handed heart posture. What that means is they sat here and they lived open-handed. When you live open-handed, that means God can come and he can take what's in your hands and he can also put in. When you live open-handed, you can freely give and freely receive. But when we live closed-fisted, we're saying, God, i got to hang on to what resources I'm supposed to steward for you. It means God can't freely come and tell me what to do with that. You know what else can't happen? Nothing else can get in. When I live close-fisted, I don't freely give, and I don't freely receive either. I think that's one of the miracles of what's happening in this passage. It said that there were no needy among them. You know what that means? It means that they had to make their needs known. That's not our culture. That's for sure. That is not our American culture. To let my needs be known. I guarantee there are some of you in here that feel shame today because you have a need. And you feel embarrassed to let people know. It's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is that we live open-handed, meaning we can freely give and freely receive. And I pray that God breaks that off today. That if you have need, that you walk in today and God opens up your hands so that he can put something in it. That the shame gets removed and you're able to encounter the grace that he has for you if you walked in that way today. So it keeps going. Let's get to verse our first example here. Our first example is of someone who was living open-handed. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Why did he sell the field? Why did he decide to give it all? We are given zero details. Of what happened. We don't even know how the money was distributed. What did it go to? Don't know. He just laid it at the apostles' feet. He, he lived what we just talked about. The, the mindset of being open-handed. He was a steward of a piece of land. And, but he wasn't the owner. God was the owner. So when it was laid upon his heart to sell this thing, the resources that came in from it, he was just the steward of. So he came and he brought it to the apostles' feet. You know, he didn't give all of this expecting something on the back end. It's not like he gave because, you know, there were tax advantages and he needed the write-off for this quarter. I'm all for those things. But generosity is not because I get something on the back end of it. In fact, Joseph probably had to pay taxes on top of it. He probably had to pay Rome taxes. He probably had to pay the temple taxes on top of this. Anyways, it's not like he got a tax break. There were no tax breaks from Rome. He, it wasn't something that he got a reward out of in the immediate. 
See, we live in a culture where, where when we do something like this, it's often expected for there to be some sort of immediate give back to us. Give and you will get. Now. And what that is, is it's a perversion of a promise from God. God, God talk, the scriptures talk about sowing and reaping. When we sow into something, we reap something. But how that has been perverted and twisted is we say things, people have said things, like give $100 today and 150 will come back to you next week. Give $100 today and some breakthrough that you've needed will come by the end of the month. That's what the prosperity gospel is rooted in. It's a manipulation and a perversion of, a, of the kingdom of God. It's so that people can get something they want and manipulate and twist, and it's not true. It is a perversion of it. See, what is true is that when we give, God does promise reward. It's just not always in the way that we think it's going to come. We have a built-in expectation at times of how that's going to play out. Jesus said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven, not on earth. That's often, oftentimes for many of us a really disappointing line. Wait, store up treasures in heaven? I don't even understand what heaven is. I don't have a f real revelation of it. Is, it. is it people sitting on clouds singing? Is it just like one giant worship service for, for all time? I don't understand fully what it is. There's been more come out on it in years, in more recent years, but it's like we still don't have a full grasp on it. So when we hear that there's reward coming for us, not always in the here and now, sometimes, sometimes you, you give and God pours in. Sometimes you don't give and God pours in. Sometimes God is pouring out on you well before you've ever given anything. It doesn't, it's not a formula. But sometimes we're looking for the formula. We're looking for the thing. And so what it does is it takes us out of being in a, a generous heart posture that is open-handed. And we start calculating our moves for how we can be generous and how we can get what we want from God, how this situation can get worked out. And what we end up doing is we end up living closed-fisted, clinging on to what little we have hoping that we can manipulate the situation. And listen, we're not all trying to be manipulative. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a room full of manipulative people that are trying to in intentionally coerce God. I'm saying what, what is real is that we have wounds from our past. We have fears about our future that are undealt with. And because they're undealt with, they cause us to manipulate how we engage with God because we've got this fear of the future that we haven't allowed him to speak into because I got a wound from the past that I haven't allowed him to touch. Instead of now how I interact with him and how I interact with the things that he's put me in as a steward over means that I'm not necessarily doing it in submission to him. I'm doing it from a place of insecurity. And God wants to come and touch those places. He wants us to live open-handed, not closed-fisted, clinging to what we have. You know, our second example is what happened when people lived closed-fisted. For whatever reason, they, they tried to hang on to what they were called the steward 
rather than living generous with, with what they had been called to steward. They wanted the appearance of generosity without actually their heart being fully generous. Because remember, generosity is not our dollar amount. Let's listen to what, what it says. It's now in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some, some of the money you received for the land? Did it not belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think to do such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but you've also lied to God. What he's saying is that this was yours to steward. You didn't have to bring it all. But you played like you, you did. You wanted everybody to think that you brought it all. But you secretly kept some back. That's what's happened in this situation. It's not like Peter came to Ananias and said, Ananias, here's the deal. You've got to sell this, sell this field right now. You've got to bring everything to us. And if you don't, there's going to be trouble for you. No, Ananias did this of his own accord. And he secretly held back some of the money. We don't even know why. Listen to what, goes, listen to what happens going forward. It's, it's tough, okay? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized over all who heard what happened. Some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, that is the price. Bought into the lie, kept going with it. Peter said, how could you conspire to test the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out also. And she fell down and died. The young men came, found her dead, carried her out and buried her next to her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about this. He goes, I don't want to dance around the scriptures. I don't want to leave out parts that are hard to read. This is hard to read. It's hard to read it and go, what? They gave, but they didn't give all, and so they died? That's hard for me to swallow. That is hard for all of us to swallow. Because it makes me go, oh, wait, well, there, there's been some times that I have... Uh, I've maybe held back some stuff. And it's like, wow, okay, that's, this, is a, this is a hard pas passage. And you know, what happens is when we confront hard passages like this, often we get stuck in it. We get stuck and we ask, and we just don't dig any deeper. I don't know how, why Ananias died. I don't know if he was old and in poor health and the shock of being found in a lie gave him a heart attack. I don't know. 
I don't know what happened. I do know that somewhere along the way, he became closed-fisted. Something had happened that had caused him to stop living like this and to start gripping what he had. To hold on tight. And I think the reality is, is we've all found ourselves there before. We've all found ourselves trying to hold on to something so tightly. For whatever reason, we find ourselves trying to grip to it, afraid that we're going to lose it. You know, this is talking about money. This, this whole passage that we're in today is talking about money and possessions. So we're not going to drift too far from it because honestly, money and possessions have a grip on us. It does bleed into other things like your relationships and your time and those things, but we're not going to go there because we need to address that money and possessions have a grip on our soul. And if we don't deal with it, we'll end up clinging to things rather than living open-handed before God and saying, you can freely take and you can freely pour into my life. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we don't live that way? I have to ask myself, Chris, why do you not live that way? I would say it's probably a common thread through all of us when we find ourselves gripping tightly and not necessarily wanting to let go. It's generally coming back to this one simple idea. I'm not sure I believe that God's going to meet all my needs. We don't always all get there the same way. Some of you grew up with very little. Maybe you had a single mom, or maybe you had grandparents that, that took care of you, and they worked their tails off. They worked two or three jobs, and yet you still didn't have the things that you needed. And so it's seeded a thought in your mind that there's never enough. Others of you, you know, you had plenty. Maybe you had a parent that worked so much to provide all the things that you had, but what you ended up with was no attention. So you felt completely unseen. So now you buy things. If you have this car, if your house is this big, if you eat at these restaurants, then you're seen. And your value comes from being seen by those things, by what you have. And so if you let go of those things, do you really have any value anymore? Are you still really seen? We may not have taken the same path to get to the place where we end up gripping something, but it usually comes back to, I don't believe that God's going to take care of me. So I'm going to hang on to what I have. Because if I let it go, I don't know that any more will come. Will any more flow back into my life? Will God give me anything else? Will anything else come? So I'm going to hold some back. I'm going to keep a little bit for myself. I'm going to tuck it away. Maybe no one will notice it. Maybe no one will notice anything about it. But I'm going to hang on to this. Save it for a rainy day. See, there's an interesting thing about that 
that word in verse 2 of chapter 5, held back, it actually means to misappropriate. That's how we know that we are called to be stewards, not owners. Because it's God's. Everything I got is God's. I'm called to steward it. And and what it says Ananias did is he misappropriated the funds. He pretended like they were actually his and that they weren't God's. Do you know that, that, that word, that Greek word for misappropriate is only used two other times in the scriptures. One of them is from Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, what, what is taking place is that the people are in the process of coming into the promised land. They're in the process of entering into it. Joshua has been appointed the leader of the people, and they're in the process of taking it. And along the way, God has said, hey, this is how you need to do it. This is take these things, don't take these things. He's given them some guidelines for how to do the process. Well, after one particular battle, God comes to Joshua and to the other leaders and and says, hey, um, you you did this wrong, and it's, therefore, I'm not going to be able to bless you. You've not followed my instruction. They're like, whoa, hold on. How did we not follow your instruction? And they're like, someone among you took the things I said not to take. They're like, well, how do we know who it is? No one has said anything. No one's come clean. No one's confessed anything. And God tells them, you're going to have to interrogate everybody. So you would think if you were the person who had stolen something, misappropriated something, you would come clean once you see the investigation starting to, to unravel. Well, nope. This guy named Achan waits through line after line of people get questioned, and they finally come to him. And he says, yep, it was me. In verse 21 of Joshua 7, it says, when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, misappropriated them. Same words that's used when Ananias and Sapphira did it. They're hidden in the ground with my tent with the silver underneath. He didn't confess because of a contrite heart. He confessed because he got caught. He confessed because he got caught. And what ended up happening is he ended up getting stoned. And after they they stoned him, they built a memorial there at and they called the place the Valley of Acre, which meant the Valley of Trouble. They called this place the Valley of Trouble. And you know what I find so crazy about this? Is Achan, they were in the process of taking the promised land that God had given them. It was a prosperous land. And he was with them. It wasn't just a one-time moment, they were actually getting a generational blessing. Achan's kids and grandkids were going to inherit this thing. And he traded it for a robe and a little bit of gold and silver. That's the trouble. Guys, when we hang on to what we have, we trade 
what God has for us for something so less in value. He traded his place in the promised land for a robe because he didn't believe that God would actually take care of him. Because somewhere along the way, he was convinced that he had to take care of himself. He had to hang on to what he had if he was going to get what he needed. I believe what God wants to do today is he wants to touch some of those places in us that have planted those seeds. See, what I, the picture I had in my mind as, as I was praying through this and thinking about it is it's like a weed that has grown up. We, we can rip the weed out, but if we don't get the root, the thing will just pop up again. And I believe God wants to pull some roots out that have produced some weeds in our life. He wants to pull out some weeds. He wants to touch maybe a place in your past that has left a wound that's caused you to operate with a closed fist. He wants to maybe speak to a fear that you have about your future that's causing you to operate with a closed fist. And he wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage you so that you can find yourself living open-handed and free. Freely able to give, freely able to receive what he has for you. Able to walk out of your valley of acre. Able to walk out of your valley of trouble into something new. Into something beautiful. You know, there's a, another passage I want to just end on. In Hosea chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, Hosea prophesies and says of God, and just let's sit with this for a moment. Let, let me slow down. This is God speaking over the people. This is God speaking over you today. Let's just, let's just close our eyes for a moment. Let's let him speak this word over us. He wants to bring you out of the valley of acre, out of the valley of trouble, out of the trauma of your past, out of the fear of the future. He says, therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. Just stay right there. Keep your eyes closed. God wants to take the valley of Acre, the valley of trouble, and he wants to turn it into a door of hope today. Thousands of years ago, he spoke this word. And when he spoke that word, he also had you in mind. He had that moment where he knew you needed a touch from him so that your hands could be opened up and receive freely what he wants to give you. 
So God, we, we ask that right now that you would come and speak tenderly. You'd come and speak tenderly to our hearts. Even as you're sitting there, some of you might have a, a thought come to mind from something from your past. I know it might be hard. I don't want to minimize it. I encourage you to sit there and let, let God be with you there. Let him speak tenderly to you. Maybe you've got something about your future. Maybe it's about your kids. How are you going to pay for college? You're asking these questions. You've got fears about your future. Let God sit in that place with you. Let him speak tenderly to you. We'll never open our hands if we don't let him speak. band's going to lead us in, a, in another song. Can I get a couple of our prayer team up front? If you're sitting here and you feel like you're having a hard time connecting with what God's wanting to do, I would encourage you to come ask one of these people to pray for you. Sometimes we just need a little help, um, helping hear what God might want to say to us. If you've got a need going on in your life, let, let these people pray for you. You can stand, you can come to the front, you can stay seated and let God continue to speak to you. But he's turning valleys of acre into doors of hope right now. And he's doing it with his voice, speaking a good word to you. So let's worship and let's respond to him and let's let hope be revived in our hearts today.